Cutting through an overload of information to get to the heart of the story. This is The Point. Welcome to The Point, an opinion show coming to you from Beijing. I'm Li Xin. The message we must send loud and clear is that now is the time to make serious reflections and get China-U.S. relations back onto the right track. That's what Chinese State Council and Foreign Minister Wang Yi said at the Asia Society last Thursday in his 5,000-word speech on China-U.S. relations. During his stay in the United States to attend the 77th session of the UN General Assembly, he has expounded on this topic on several occasions. During his statement at the General Assembly, he also called for making every effort for peace and development and shouldering the responsibility for solidarity and progress. What's specific messages has China sent to the U.S. through Wang Yi's trip. How have these messages gone down? I'm pleased to be joined from Washington, D.C. by Rick Dunham, former White House correspondent for Business Week, and from Beijing by Wang Huiyao, president of the Center for China and Globalization, a prestigious think tank. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Um, Wang Yi addressed the general debate at the 77th UN General Assembly saying we must uphold peace and oppose war and turbulence. He said we must pursue development and eliminate poverty. We must remain open and oppose exclusion. We must stay engaged in cooperation and oppose confrontation. And we must strengthen solidarity and oppose division. We must uphold equity and oppose bullying. Rick, what do you think is his saying telling the world about China's priorities or stance? Well, I think the words and the principles that he addressed uh, can't really be debated. Uh, who, who is against peace? Who is against cooperation? Uh, the challenge that he faces uh, I really are, are multiple. I, one is that we don't have peace in, uh, in Ukraine. There was a Russian invasion and there are massacres and, and war crimes and it's really hard. China is caught in the middle of that. And, and then the other is that there are unilateral actions uh, at, like the United States with the uh, trade war uh, that Donald Trump started and that has not abated yet. Uh, and, and other things that uh, have, they get in the way of sort of this idea uh, the principles that he addresses that, that, that are admirable and that are hard for people to disagree with. Right, but I have to point out that uh, these are accusations, these are suspicions that uh, these crimes that you just mentioned were committed, but uh, no official investigation or conclusion that are accepted by the international community have been reached. Um, but that aside, Mr. Wang Yi also singled out the Taiwan question on various occasions, and here's what he said. Let's take a listen. The One China principle has become a basic norm in international relations and a general consensus of the international community. Only by resolutely forestalling in accordance with the law separatist activities can forge a true foundation for peaceful reunification. Only when China is completely reunified can there be enduring peace across the Taiwan Strait. So this was a center piece, a very important message that he made throughout his stay in the United States on various occasions during his meeting with, for instance, uh, um, the famous Henry Kissinger or with his uh, U.S. counterpart, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken. Mr. Wang Huiyao, why 
does China have to reiterate this matter again and again and again? Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Liu Xin. And uh, I, I think this, uh, this time, the Foreign Minister and State Council uh, Wang's visit uh, to the United Nations attending the General Assembly is very significant. It's actually the, the, since the pandemic for the last three years, we have a Chinese uh, top official uh, physically visit the U.S. And he's not only actually talking to the uh, United Nations and also he's meeting the business community, meeting uh, old China veteran like uh, Dr. Kissinger, but he's also made a very uh, comprehensive and very uh, uh, long speech at Asia Society. Right. So not only talking to the government, but also to the public as well. I think that uh, it's really uh, giving such a complexity and giving such a, a geopolitical tension that we're having now, given that uh, uh, Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, I think it's really high time a senior official of China goes to U.S. and speak publicly and with government and with everybody to really set out clear Chinese objectives and positions. So this is very, very clear and very comprehensive and very actually reasonable and very, very uh, uh, you know convincing that China is, wants to make peace, wants to safeguard world uh, multilateral system, wants to talk with U.S. and wants to maintain the uh, global uh, uh, governance as, as it is. Mm. But also, actually, he's meeting the foreign minister of Ukraine and, and everybody. So it shows that China is very positively making contribution to the world stability and the future uh, economy of the, of the world. Yeah, let's also not forget there was this very important meeting, which is a sideline event about uh, a group of friends to the Global Development Initiative, which is highly uh, praised by the United Nations and uh, the various agencies that are dedicated to development. But again, we're focusing on U.S.-China relations. As we have uh, discussed, Rick, Mr. Wang, he had a very busy schedule. He met with you know various leaders. He talked on various occasions. He met with uh, U.S. organizations such as the U.S.-China Committee on U.S.-China Relations, U.S.-China Business Council, U.S. Chamber of Commerce. What do you think he's trying to achieve by doing all of this? Uh, well, I think it's important because, uh, as, as we all know, the relationship has been in the deep freeze for several years. And these are, these are leading uh, organizations, non-government organizations in the United States uh, that have influence in over policymakers. And uh, I think that the idea is, uh, Wang Yi is the uh, most persuasive uh, Chinese uh, government official uh, in communicating with an American audience. And I think that uh, I mean, he communicates in a way uh, that Americans understand. He uses language that is accessible. Do you think and, his messages have been, so, have so been so heated? Do you think his messages have been heated well? Have gone down well? No, I think they've been heard well. Uh, but I, I think what's important for him is to let American policymakers know how seriously um, China takes these certain issues. I don't think that he's changing any minds on Taiwan. Uh, I think the United States and China have to agree to disagree for the time being. And, and on other issues such as trade and international cooperation, I, I think that uh, it's good to say that you are in favor of, of improving relations. I think that what we need, to, need is concrete results. I think we need higher level meetings. We need the presidents of the two countries uh, to meet and then yeah. start having some deliverables. I think well, that's when the relations would, would change. Right now, he, he is laying the groundwork for it. Yeah, but the like thing Henry is, yeah. Mr. Wang, uh, Mr. Wang here. I, I think the thing is, the presidents of both countries have met several times, and China has a problem with 
what is being said during these heads of state meetings are not being implemented on the ground. It's almost like, you know, you turn around and you forget what you're saying. Does China have, have a sense of speaking to a wall? That's why Mr. Wang Yi actually used the word that, you know, the message we must send loud and clear is that now is the time to make serious reflections and get back onto the right track. Actually, when translated into Chinese, it is literally meaning a, a loud yell. Is, is China really having the sense of desperation or, or, or you know, helplessness that the messages is just not being heard, heeded? Well, I think this is really the high time. Uh, it's really uh, the critical time that uh, uh, China top diplomats actually uh, express such a strong uh, voice uh, in the General Assembly at the UN uh, annual meeting. But also that, uh, you know, uh, he has, uh, has met so many extensively with uh, all kinds of uh, people that in, the, in, the, in, the, in this uh, uh, China-US related, his uh, society, his community, as you mentioned. But also, I think the has gone down. He used a lot of examples, uh, a lot of uh, data, a lot of statistics. It's much more convincing and much more wide impact. So I think that kind of paved the way for the future uh, high-level talk, like 20 probably coming up, uh, that uh, the top leaders may meet between the U.S. and China. But I think this visit is significant, that actually paved the way for... But how do you look at the use of language here, this da yisheng? That is making headlines. The Chinese translation did make a lot of headlines, Mr. Wang. Yeah, I think this is really uh, very, very critical that uh, he was, uh, you, know, um, you know, like shouting loudly and it's a big reminder. And uh, let's really not, uh, you know, you know, we are at the cliff now. You know, we are having the critical lowest point of our relations. Let's really stop there. Let's come to the common <laughs> sense and the common <laughs> understanding and then really make some common uh, gestures to work really a stabilized relation. So, I think so that's the, what he means. Yeah, so the, emergence, so the urgency of the situation. But Mr. Wang, you made a tour of the United, an extensive one just recently. Tell us about your impressions very briefly. Do you think there is still hope on the different levels? I mean, things are not as bad as, as it seems on the headlines. Absolutely. I think this is really critical that uh, we meet face to face. And that, that's that's so well. I think Minister Wang Yi can meet so many people face to face now for the, almost three years. He's meeting, you know, like uh, U.S. China Business Council and uh, Steering Committee of the National Committee and also U.S. General Chamber. I met all of them, too. But I found that if we meet them face to face, there's a lot of clarification. There's a lot of body language and facial expressions that can be really understood. Those, so those small talks are so important to pave the way for the big talks at the high level. We need those small talks and then the personal private meetings. So that, so I'm extremely uh, pleased to see that uh, for Mr. Wang Yi has done all those extensively for a whole week that meeting so many parties and so many you know, stakeholders of China's relations and also appealing to the international community. Let's have a, you know, a reasonable, uh, stable relation. Let's you know, work for sure that there is some responsibility for the world and for all the burning issues that really plague in the world, rather than we are obsessed with geopolitical and regional and, and also Taiwan issues. So this is a very important message he's sending yeah. to everybody. And that's I found the same thing in my trip too. Uh, yeah. Everybody wants to talk, everybody wants to meet, and let's build on, on that momentum. Yeah. Uh, Rick, do you share also a sense of cautious optimism that there is hope that things may improve? Uh, yes, I could not uh, agree more uh, with what we uh, just heard. And I think that 
it is very important to have these in-person discussions. It's, 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 it's good that we're moving past the pandemic and, and, and the separation of the two countries in terms of having the person-to-person -person relations. I also think it is good to have um, public disagreements and frank discussions, no, not, not, not just niceties. But I do think it will be hard and slow uh, to make fixes because both sides are going to have to make some compromises. I mean, there are principles that the two sides will not uh, compromise on, but there are certain things that can be compromised on, uh, particularly business-related and economic-related. Okay. Uh, and, and so I think we should be, we should focus again on what brings the countries together mm -hmm. rather than uh, for the last few years when we focused on the things that separate the, yeah. the two countries. All right. We have to leave it there. Many thanks to Rick Dunham, former White House correspondent for Business Week, and Wang Huiyao, president of the Center for China and Globalization. We'll take a short break, and when we come back, U.S. President Joe Biden says the pandemic is over in the United States. Is that really the case? We'll find out. Making room for all opinions and seeing events from more than one side. This is The Point. U.S. President Joe Biden has declared that the pandemic is over. The head of the World Health Organization also said recently that the end is in sight, but clarified days later that seeing the end doesn't mean we are at the end. However, medical experts and international public health officials seem to have different opinions on this. A senior WHO official also warned that richer nations must not step away from tackling COVID-19 as a global problem now, ahead of future potential waves of infections, lest they have blood on their hands. Meanwhile, official data from the U.S. show on average 400 Americans are still dying from the virus each day and nearly one in five adults who had COVID were still suffering from long COVID. So where exactly are we in the fight against the pandemic and why is there such a, a stark difference in opinions? How serious is the lingering challenge of COVID and its long-term symptoms? I'm pleased to be joined from San Francisco by Dr. Peter Chin Hong, Professor of Medicine Medicine of the Division of Infectious Diseases at the University of California, San Francisco. Peter, thank you very much for joining us. So, yeah, U.S. President Joe Biden said on TV that the pandemic is over. He was taking an interview with uh, CBS 60 Minutes. He said, we're still doing a lot of work on it, but the pandemic is over. And then he also referred to the crowd saying, if you notice, no one is wearing masks. Everybody is in pretty good shape. He said, I think it's changing. How do you interpret his remarks? Was he making a serious announcement or he was just saying something uh, because he was there, you know, just to please the crowd or, or, or some other statement that's that just came out at the moment? Well, I think he was speaking very colloquially and uh, not probably scientifically based. He was speaking from his heart, from the emotion. He was there at a trade show. We all want the pandemic to be over so that the economy can go on. But I think if you speak to scientists, there are two reasons why we don't think the pandemic is over now. The first is, of course, the number of deaths. Uh, even if we are in a lull right now in the United States, 400 people a day dying is you know 160,000 a year, which is several fold higher than even a regular flu season. Uh, second reason is we can't predict the future. We want it to be over, but until we see many, many months of very low level disease, we can't really say it's over because the only thing predictable about COVID is that it's unpredictable. Well, daily infections, as you mentioned, still hover around uh, 50,000 daily in the United States and uh, some 400 Americans still are still dying 
each day of COVID. So medically, how do you tell that a pandemic is over? I mean, what, are, what may be the criteria and how does one measure exactly where we are? Well, I think if you really speak to um, a variety of scientists, there is an epidemiologic definition, which is, uh, you know, not a large number of cases happening in multiple countries at the same time. But then there is a quality of life issue. And if you say it's impacting the quality of life or it's not impacting, then you say it's over. But again, uh, it's really tough to say this when it's still happening all over the world at different rates and different people have different levels of immunity. For me personally, uh, we may be on the road, as the director general of the WHO said, but until we have many, many months, I can't really say for sure. This is a snapshot, not a longitudinal picture. Hmm. What, given the kind of mindset that Americans have right now about this virus, I mean, my understanding is that it's been so long, a lot of people really quite tired, maybe, of the prevention measures, although a lot, and some people have got it repeatedly, but survived so far. So maybe there's a sense of fatigue and, and so on and so, so forth. But when the president is saying, even you know, just uh, not as a serious declaration that the pandemic is over. Do you think there will be serious implications, or it will just be you know just another day? Well, no. I think it will have many implications. The first implication is, of course, symbolically, you have the leader of the country saying it's over. I think a lot of people would jump on that bandwagon and not really be flexible in terms of bringing those masks back on or the testing when numbers increase. But the second reason, which I think is most important, is that to control a, a national emergency, you need money from the federal level. So if you say it's over, that gives a rationale not to give money. Uh, and it really boils down to who's responsible. If it's not responsible at the countrywide or federal level, it leaves it to the local governments to take care of in terms of who pays for mass tests, uh, early therapy, even vaccines, it's going to go on the free market probably in 2023. That means that people who don't have the ability to pay or no insurance would probably not be able to afford um, you know, additional boosters. Let me try to bring in uh, our other guest, uh, Dr. Eric Fagel-Ding, epidemiologist and chief of the COVID task force of the World Health Network. Eric, if you're there, let me know, Eric. Yes, I can, I can hear yeah, you. Good, yeah, good, good. So, Go yeah, how do you look at the remarks by President Joe Biden that the pandemic is over? Do you think he made it as a serious declaration or is just a blur on the side? Do you think there may be possible policy changes as to, for instance, funding or resources that are dedicated to fighting COVID that may be diverted elsewhere? I think it's a very unfortunate comment. It was very um, ad-lib, as in it wasn't planned and none of his staff uh, was actually prepped. Uh, the coronavirus White House team actually did not know it was being made. And so they reiterated there's no policy change, mm. but they emphasized that the U.S. is out of pandemic funds for more uh, testing, for more treatments um, and vaccines uh, after, after this, uh, this fall. So starting in 2023, basically, Unless Congress authorizes new, you know, U.S. pandemic response will be severely handicapped. 
But as of now, there's no immediate change of policy mm. regarding the uh, COVID pandemic. All right. Uh, as I mentioned in the leading, there was a bit of a apparent flip-flop on the part of the World Health Organization as well. World Health Organization Director General Dr. Tedros Ghebreyesus had a, a bit of a explaining to do, it seemed, after he asserted in mid-September that the end of COVID pandemic is in sight. And then he had to clarify a week later saying, we can see the end inside inside doesn't mean that we're at it. What does he mean? So where exactly are we in terms of the fight against the against the virus? Eric? Now is that um, we are still really, really heading into a very dangerous winter. Um, and the winter right now is that there are so many new variants out there that are so penetrant against even our current vaccines, even the new bivalence vaccines, that we're, I think, potentially going to see an inevitable surge in um, late fall or winter time. And many countries are not prepared. We're dismissing precautions. And, you know, we're actually less prepared than we have been in the last two winters because we actually have almost no mitigation whatsoever. And I think that is sets a, a lot of countries up for failure because we actually are taking care uh, against COVID even less than before. So, and I think it's going to hit us just like a tsunami, like Omicron hit us last year, it's going to happen again. Well, Bruce Aylward, who is a senior advisor to WHO Director General, uh, also warned that richer nations must not step away from tackling COVID-19 as a global problem now. He said, if you go to sleep right now, God, blood will be on your hands. I mean, extremely strong words. So, yeah. yeah. Well taken. But if you look at the realities on the ground in many countries, for instance, what we saw in the UK, for instance, during uh, a recent uh, uh, large scale gathering, it seems that countries have already lifted restrictions or they are apparently given up on, on doing something about to stop COVID. Are you or is the WHO sounding uh, useless alarm, if I don't want to say exaggerated alarm, Eric? No, I don't, I don't think these alarms are exaggerated. I think Bruce Hayward is very correct. There will be blood on uh, a lot of leaders' hands once winter comes because, you know, the mitigations are gone. They're selling basically short-term economic gain for long-term pain in terms of long COVID and many other hospitalization, hospitals and other cancer and other heart attacks, uh, people who suffer at the same time. You know, they're really, really throwing them under the bus because right now all they care about is immediate growth, not the long-term impact. And I think you need good leadership that can see the long-term impact of this will come back to bite us and we will uh, rue the day and we will regret us completely Mm. throwing caution into the wind. And I think that's what many countries are doing. And I think that it's, again, for the third year, almost, it's a pandemic of failed leadership. It, it's hard. It's incredibly hard. But, uh, yeah, uh, Peter, to the challenge of uh, long COVID, the WHO said about 10 to 20 percent of people experience long COVID after surviving their initial COVID illness. And the U.S. government said long COVID has potentially affected up to 23 million Americans. Uh, is the threat, is the challenge um, being understood by the people? No, I think long COVID is so uh, invisible. It's in the background. Um, Many people have it. They don't really know how to characterize it. There are a lot of disparities around 
long COVID because if you have access to care, you probably would get diagnosed. You may get some treatment, but if you don't have access to care, you just think you can't work uh, for whatever reason and you're not really sure. Uh, at the end of the day, we don't have a lot of information about it. Uh, there is, uh, you know, a billion dollars being uh, promised by the NIH to study this, but the studies are very limited right now. They're in its infancy. We don't really have good treatments. We don't even know how many people really have it, but what we do know is what you said, which is that uh, not only are millions of people affected by it, uh, there are probably two to four million people who are severely affected by it so much so that they are not in the workforce. We don't know when they will come back, but it's contributing to a, a, a big um, vacuum for the future when we have you know, problems even hiring people in the food industry and education and even healthcare when we have, you know, somebody said that uh, you know, uh, quitting is infectious right now because of all of these reasons combining burnout plus long COVID and chronic conditions. So, sorry, you say quitting is infectious? Yes. Okay, so it's Quitting not... your job. Oh, quitting your job is infectious. Um, what is your reaction to the comment that, uh, about blood on the hands? What is your reaction, I would like to know, Peter? Well, my reaction is similar to Eric's, which is that it's not a, it's not a, um, a far out comment. And the reason why is if you look at where variants were created, uh, they were really in unvaccinated areas. So Delta in India, Omicron in South Africa, unless the richer countries continue to help support the vaccine efforts in much of the world, um, you know, we are going to continue to see variants uh, upend our progress that we've made, upend hmm. and disrupt uh, the community and schools and work, uh, etc. So let's keep fighting the pandemic until it is really over. Many thanks to Dr. Peter Ching Hong, Professor of Medicine of the Division of Infectious Diseases at the University of California, San Francisco, and on the phone from Washington by Dr. Eric Ding, epidemi epidemiologist and chief of the COVID Task Force at the World Health Network. With that, we come to the end of this edition of The Point. With me, Liu Xin, as always, you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter using the handle Liu Xin in Beijing. You've got The Point. We all enter this world with a universal greeting. <laughs> we then learn to speak. Though our languages, cultures and traditions may differ, we still share one thing in common. We have hope for humanity and the world. General Railway Company Deutsche Bahn. Hear the difference. Join our global network to connect with the world.